I'm in Hajjina, and you're listening to Voices of the City, a project of Broad Street Radio. These young boys jump out of the Impala, they open up the boot. Out of the boot, they unpack this small little turntable with this big battery pack on it. And they then take out this big pile of records. And I'm grabbing the records, they grab the rest of it, and we start marching into our house. And they're like, you got to listen to this music that we just got fresh out of America because they used to work on the boats. And then I heard the bass line, boom, boom, boom. They were doing boom, 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 boom. And I was like, wait, 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 I, I, I recognize that. The first record on the vinyl was Rapper's Delight. This song, smuggled from the United States, shaped how he consumed and would later create music in the city. You are listening to Voices of the City, hosted by Minhaj Jina and produced by Volume. The six-part series will explore race, history and resistance through Cape Town hip-hop culture from the late 1980s until today. In this episode, we're in the District 6 Museum with DJ Reddy D, who, with other creators, formed the crew known as Prophets of the City. In 1988 in Azania, no one knew what was going on. The apartheid state was murdering black people almost every single day. Black activists and their families were being tortured in secret. Bombs were going off in Joburg city centre. The state orchestrated literal wars in townships in Durban and Cape Town. Rising clouds of black smoke often obscured the city's skyline and it seemed like the seeds of separateness were pushed far too deep into our communities. And amidst all the violence and oppression, something beautiful was sprouting. In Lentechia Mitchell's plane on the Cape Flats, a young and ambitious creator named Dion Daniels was getting agitated. Dion was a revolutionary. He scratched records to make sounds that people had never heard before. During the state of emergency in the 1980s, when the entire country was on lockdown, he and his friends would go to the white side of the train station to b-boy because the floor was cleaner. One evening, Dion was at a peculiar nightclub in Cape Town. There, he met a young political activist named Shaheen Ariftin. Shaheen was inspired by Mandela and Steve Biko and was immersed in community art movements in the city. Dion and Shaheen formed a crew that would play a role in shaping music, culture and resistance in Cape Town. They called themselves Prophets of the City. Dion continued to scratch records and he spoke truth to power. He went by the name DJ Ready D. Welcome to Voices of the City, my brother. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Before we start the discussion, can you describe where we're sitting right now? We are sitting inside the District 6 Museum. This place captures the history, the heritage, and the journeys of so many families that were displaced, or should I say that were affected by the previous apartheid um, forced removal policies. And our families were amongst those that were bulldozed out of the area of District 6. Um, to my left, I'm looking at all the street names and some of them I can uh, relate to and the street that I used to live in. So coming here for me, being a resident of District 6 and coming into this space, I'm constantly learning new things as well. Because at the time when we were displaced, I was too young to truly understand what was going on. So my first encounters with an uprising or the state of emergency was at the age, I think I was aged seven or eight years. That was primary school in 1976. 
and I remember white police coming onto our primary school and they were just firing off all these um, tear gas grenades and my sister came to grab me out of, out of the classroom in, in, in a frenzy and she had these handkerchiefs over our faces and our noses and at that wow. time I didn't understand what was going on. Mm. I just remember myself and so many other kids crying, screaming, shouting, not knowing what's going on. District 6 turned dark. It was just smoke of tear gas. And that was my, 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 my first memory of really feeling, you know, the, I would say, the, the, the impact of apartheid on a physical level. And, I mean, up, 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 until, up until then, was there any realization of the violence and the oppression and the resistance happening beyond District 6? There was the, uh, the realization of the violence and the oppression in and beyond District 6. Yeah. And also, if we look at the strategies um, implemented by the previous apartheid government, it was all about divide and conquer as well, you know, and also the type of schooling that we've received. So in so many areas, our minds were actually taken off from what was truly happening. And mm -hmm. that came much later, though. As you pointed out, when we started entering the 80s, the mid-80s, that is when, for me personally, as a young boy, I started to grasp what was going on, but on a very, very basic level. Mm. Because my interest and my priorities was in a different space at yeah. that time as well. So after being relocated from District 6, it was a whole community that was practically ripped apart and displaced and put all over Cape Town City. And so many of us went into foreign and barren spaces that we couldn't really understand. You had yeah. to make new friends, meet new neighbors, you had to learn a new way of life as well. You had to find a different way to survive. So reflecting and thinking back, I mean, I think that is probably some of the heaviest emotional scars I think that I carry and so many communities carry that lived through that. So the pain runs deep. Let's talk more about, about where you grew up. It's not far from the museum. Correct. Right. Can you tell us more about that? Your, your, your neighbors, the community, what you did for fun as a kid? Absolutely. So I grew up in, in, in a road called Upper Shepherd Street. And okay. this road practically ran into a very famous road known as Hanover Street. So District 6 was a very small and compact space. And the community, they were close-knit. Everybody knew everybody in District mm -hmm. 6. You know, when something happened at somebody's house, everybody would know about it. When there was a party at somebody's place, it's like everybody was invited, you know, so it was that type of um, atmosphere. My memories are the vibrancy, number one. As kids, we used to spend a lot of time after school playing in the roads. So that was the, 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 the beauty of the space, and all the kids would play with each yeah. other as well, and it was very exciting coming from school, you know, knowing that you're going to be playing all these street games. Um, preparing for New Year's, that was magical. You know, we had the, tra the traditional music. Mm. Um, lots of people know, um, know the music as the, the Coon Carnival music or the Cape Minstrels. We also had um, the Guma sound, the Guma music. Um, we also had all the Christmas choirs as well and all these parties and you could feel the atmosphere in the air, something was happening because a lot of the big bands and the big troops and the crews and the church choirs would come out of District 6 as well. So there was a lot of music in the place as well. All the good memories actually um, overrides all the negative 
um, aspects, you know, in terms of what we had to deal with in District 6. I just want to fast forward very quickly and I want to go to 1978-79. That's when I remember more bulldozers coming into District 6. And that's when I started to notice as a young boy, things are changing. And it was scary on the one end because now the bulldozers are dropping homes right next to mine. And I can see now the neighbors are relocating and there's different places that were packed with people staying, you know, like these little flatlets and all these things. People, all of them are gone. Let's talk more about 1980. Families uprooted, communities uprooted um, and forced into, uh, into Lentechia. Did you know other families that were moved to, to Lentechia or was it just your family that you knew? I knew families that um, that was moved to Lentechia. My cousin lived a couple of doors away from us. Okay. So we were practically relocated roughly in the same time period. Yeah. And then my cousins, um, they were moved to the other side of Lentechia though. You know, so, but it wasn't as close mm. in terms of proximity yeah. as it was in District 6. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're young, you're adventurous, you want to go out, you want to explore. So we're playing in the sand dunes and we walking into other areas, but then you find it's not a friendly place yeah. because now you have gangsters chasing you from one area back into your area. And as more families start moving into Lentechia, with that comes a big social um, problem. More gangsters started moving into the areas and it's all different gangs now moving into a much smaller compact area, which means that there is a, a section in your road that will separate one gang from the next. The road right behind yours or your neighbor could be from another gang and that is another element of danger that you have to, you have to deal with apart from all the other things. So being in high school in Mitchell's Plain, that was part of my journey. Being involved with gangbangers, I wasn't an active gangbanger. But most of my friends and the, and the people that I used to move around with, I was always in a gangbanger circle. Okay. So there's a lot of things that we did at such a young age that I'm not proud of. I'm always telling people that is what was planned and intended for us was to self-destruct. You know, join a gang, get killed, kill each other or go to prison. But thankfully, you know, through all of those challenging aspects, Families managed to fight through it, you know, they managed to survive yeah. and they managed to move forward, you yeah. know. They managed to defy, right? They Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of the defiance happens um, subconsciously as well. Yeah. So remember, we weren't really taught about activism, if you want to call it the way you can access the, informa uh, access the information today and interact with other activists to understand what activism is all about. So at that point in your life, it's all about survival. Mm. So that survival Parts of defiance comes built in by default into all of that. So did these experiences define your path to music? Absolutely. The, these experiences definitely define, um, you know, who I am, what I've become, and my journey within music as well. Because yeah. remember all the music that I grew up with in District 6, the traditional sounds, the guma music, that whole sound, the disco, the reggae, the funk, the soul, the jazz, I grew up with all of those different yeah. sounds. So it was easy for me to move on. Um, you, you, speak about, you speak about the jazz, the traditional music, um, the funk that sort of influenced um, uh, uh, the way you consume music and made music. But 
at the time, in mid-80s, late-80s, political rap was growing in the, in the USA, right? Public enemies fight the power was blowing up. But no one here was really listening to, to, to hip-hop. I mean, most of it was, was all of it was, was banned anyway. Where did your interest in this hip-hop movement come from? Okay, so let, let me take you back to my hip-hop history. So I was the kid that would love playing music to everybody sitting in the room, to the adults sitting in the room because I enjoyed, you know, playing vinyl. Fortunately, we had a record player and I was fascinated by vinyl and these 8-track tapes and the cassettes and all these things. I used to just randomly play the music because I had a good time with it and to see other people having a really awesome time listening to the music, singing along and dancing. And that was just me by nature and by default once again. So that was the first thing. And then I heard this rap and these guys are rhyming, talking about color TVs and the chicks and the cars and all these things. And as a young boy, I'm blown away. I can relate mm. because we used to speak in rhyme form before hip hop came along. We used to tell jokes. The guma music, the klopse, the traditional music was always written and sang and spoken of in some sort of rhythmic rhyme form. And that is why I could connect to hip hop music and the culture. After Rapper's Delight, Curtis Blows, the brakes came down. Once again, mind blown completely. Shortly after that, we then in Lentechia Mitchell's plane. A couple of months later, I see a video on TV and I see these guys scratching records and once again blown away completely. I was like, holy Lord, what did I just witness right now? Mm. The zigger, 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 zigger. And then I'm looking at these kids doing all these crazy moves <laughs> on the floor and I'm like, what? Those kids look like us. You know, I could immediately relate to that. Then there was these other kids with big oversized coats, big hats, painted faces, doing this very weird dance. And then there's a cutaway from more kids doing graffiti art on the walls and I'm sucked in. I'm completely sucked into what I'm looking at on TV right now. And that was Buffalo Girls by Malcolm McLaren. From that point, I was, I, I was drawn in. Not long after Malcolm McLaren, my classmate starts doing moonwalking in front of me. His name is DJ Rosano, or Rosano. Right then, then I'm like, what the hell? How is it possible for you to be sliding across the floor like this and you look like you're walking on air? Wait, I need to learn those steps. He taught us the steps and then um, we started breaking. So all those funny steps we see, these kids from the U.S. doing, we don't know what it's called. We don't know this thing's called hip-hop, mm. whatever the case may be. In our heads, it's a cool form of martial arts, kung fu, because we grew up with kung fu movies. So we used to try all these kung fu stunts that we would see in the movies. And I thought it was a cool combo of kung fu and gymnastics being done to some very interesting music. Mm. And it's got the zigger, zigger, zigger thing going, the scratching with the world famous Supreme Team DJs in it. And we started forming a crew that was doing these weird things. Then Michael Jackson blew up. You know, the whole thriller thing with Michael Jackson moonwalking in Beat Street and all this, it became a huge phenomenon in Cape Town City. And we entered this competition in Mitchell's Plain Town Center. So it's a Michael Jackson competition, but here these three kids come and we enter 
we don't look like Michael Jackson, we don't dress like the Michael Jackson impersonators, whatever the case may be. We got these pee caps turned sideways, we got these baseball outfits, we got our jeans cut in three quarters, and you're seeing sneakers unheard of, un nobody has seen anything like that, so you're looking like three aliens. Yeah. The announcement came, the winners are the city kids. I'm like, wow. holy Lord, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Then there were talent scouts that came mm. to see the competition and we were automatically scouted to be the resident dancers at a club in Mitchell's Plain Town Centre called Club Fantasy. Anyway, let's fast forward very quickly. So we're bordering on 1985-86 and this is when the state of emergencies are kicking in right now. So our crew, the city kids, expand into what's known as the Ballastic Rockers. More kids start joining the crew. So in this time, as we are dancing, in Mitchell's Plain Town Centre on a Saturday morning we are taking a train to go to the city centre because we want to meet other crews and dance in all these fancy spaces. And we also want to dance on the white side of Cape Town Station because it's cleaner, the surface is smoother, we don't have to break out the, um, the cardboard boxes and all these things. And we would dance in the spaces until the cops and security guards would chase us to a different location in, in the city. We would then do our thing at um, the fountain in the Golden Acre. We would then go to St. George's Mall to a place called Garlic's, and that was the routine. So we have to walk, and as we walk to Mitchell's Plain Town Centre, our b-boy crew or our breakdance crew, on the side where the new mall is right now, there is a battalion of soldiers. making sure that nobody breaks the state of emergency rules and regulations. So here we come and there's a white kid in our crew and they start interrogating us one night and they got the guns pointed in our faces, wanting to know where we're going, what we're doing, all these things. And what they then decided to do was harass us. So we're trying to explain to them, look, we're dancers, we're going to the club, we've got a show happening, all these things. And then they make our white friend, Alan, who later became known as DJ Eski, they start making him do um, his knee spins on the top until he started bleeding in the knees, you know. His clothes would then get burnt. Yeah. So that was the harassment we had to deal with, you know, just for the culture and to do what we love doing. As the townships start burning in that time, we are lucky enough to get a lot of music coming in from the US and come music coming in from the UK on cassette tapes. A lot of people then relocated, became um, uh, asylum seekers elsewhere in the world. Many of them went to Canada, US, UK, Australia. And um, a lot of the tapes started reaching us through the post. Hip hop music started reaching us through the post. Our White team member DJ Eski then relocated. He went back to the UK because he didn't want to join the armed forces and go back into the townships and start killing, you know, um, kids and people of color. So all of this is taking place at the moment, and this is practically how the hip hop music started to travel yeah. through the Cape Flats. So whenever we used to meet in town to battle crews or do our performances and jam with other crews, we would exchange tapes as well. So your LL Cool J's, Public Enemies, um, Run DMC's, all these groups, that is practically how we managed to get the music on, on, on cassette and spread that through the township. And some of the record stores would bring in small amounts of vinyl, you know, hip-hop vinyl, and this is how we managed to purchase some of them. Then in 86, 
DJ Eski sends me a plane ticket. He's like, D, you got to come over to Liverpool Merseyside, come over for a month or two. All expenses paid. I end up in uh, Merseyside and he takes me to pirate radio stations and he takes me to clubs and I'm seeing other b-boys getting down on the floor and I'm seeing other DJs scratching in front of me. So I'm seeing these things being done on a high level. Hmm. So my time's limited and you can imagine how much I'm learning and how much I'm soaking in. I'm soaking in, soaking in, soaking in. And Aski is like, don't worry, I'm going to send you over with tons of tapes and vinyls. After my stay, I come back to South Africa, come back to Cape Town with all these tapes, all these vinyls. And this is slowly how the seeds are being planted for DJ Ready D to surface. So I come back, we are based in a club called Club Teasers. So all these kids would come in from all over Cape Town City and come and party and jam to this hip-hop music, punk rock music, reggae music and all these things. It was an integrated scene, white kids, colored kids, yeah. black kids, you know, everybody in the space. Here Ready D comes with all this new music, he's coming with a new energy, he's coming with new fire. We do our first 24-hour hip-hop jam, new fresh graph pops up on the walls, we're doing the 24-hour jam, so things starts escalating. So remember, I got all this music with me now. New music is public enemy. And as that's taking place, the black conscious movement started to become stronger in the US. And that focus down to us over here because we are feeling that pressure and we mm. are feeling it right here. And we're seeing people dying. The, the military is on school, the military is in our roads, we are protesting. But there's still this act of defiance taking place. All these kids during the dark days of apartheid in this one space, jamming, white kids singing, fuck the police, you know, yeah. free Mandela and all these things. So all of that's taking place. Wow in the space. Fast forward, there's this kid that would jump into the rap ciphers in the space and he's just killing everybody on the mic. He's freaking hardcore with his um, kind of make-believe Kangol hat and he's got this very cool jacket on and he's got this attitude and he's just spitting sophisticated bars for that era. Then we came to realize, holy lord, this kid sounds like he was influenced by Alao Kool and Rakim. Cut a long story short, a mutual friend introduced us Oh, this is Shaheen. His dad's got the recording studio. Mm. And I was like, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I need to <laughs> become best friends with this homie. I'm from Mitchell's Plain. I'm running with a different crowd over here. And this guy's got a recording studio. This is my meal ticket. That's what went through my head at the time. Mm. One Saturday, a mutual friend brings um, Shaheen to my place. After the base, we're there in my room and I'm cutting it up for him. And Shaheen's like, holy crap. Okay, now respect, you know, so we get the hip-hop daps and all these things. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I heard your father's got a, your father's got a recording studio. Um, I want to record an album. And he was like, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Because this is not my dad's scene. You know, his dad's a jazz musician. His, yeah. his dad is a member of a legendary jazz outfit called Pacific Express. Anyway, I'm pestering Shaheen. And he's like, wait, hold up. My dad says, send a, um, send a demo tape. My girlfriend at the time, she was an MC. And I'm like, Michelle, you got to jump on this beat very quickly. So I got a double tape deck in my room and I start overdubbing on the double tape deck. Shaheen comes back to me and he's like, D, um, my father's partner's interested in this because my father's partner traveled to the UK and he's been exposed to the sound. And he's interested to talk about um, getting you into the studio and recording. Cut a long story short, I end up in the recording studio and I'm spending one of my nights over there 
And I'm like waiting for my rapper's delight moment. And Shaheen's like, now nah, we've got to talk about black consciousness and we've got to talk about Mandela and we've got to talk about Steve Biko. And I'm like, bruh, that's not where the money's at. Yeah. I don't care about Mandela, uh, Mandela, sorry. I don't know who Steve Biko is. Yeah, the black conscious stuff is cool. The fuck the police stuff is cool. I understand it, you know. Little to know he's a, he's a, he's a political activist at high school. So he's a part of the SRC and all these things. So they were pretty active within that space. So my agenda was to record an album, become a ghetto superstar, make millions of rands, and then buy my color TV, my car, and, you know, I have all the chicks. That was like my motive. Mm. One night something strange happened in the recording studio, and um, we're going through his dad's record collection looking for samples, and he pulls out this record, puts it on the deck, drops the needle, and um, this beautiful bass line starts playing and this beautiful piano piece is playing on it. It's the music of Abdullah Ibrahim. I personally haven't heard of, a, of this artist before in my whole life. So he was known as Dollar Brand at the time. Yeah. And then Shaheen's like, this is Afro jazz. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And I was like, wait, hold up. And he's like writing stuff on his notepad. I grab a notepad and I start, and I'm writing. And this music's playing, and I'm writing, and I'm writing, and I'm writing. And when the song was done playing, he was done with the verse, and I was done with the verse. When I look back on my page, I wrote my first social awareness political verse on that page, and I was like, I don't know what the hell happened over here. <laughs> yeah. what, what just happened up until this day, I can't articulate Mm. what I've just experienced right there. So that two verses was then put to a beat that we produced called the Boxburg Blues. And that was like our first political rap mm. in late 89, bordering on early 1990. So that was kind of planting the seeds for Prophets of the City right there. Okay. Very interesting time as well. So, so 1990, um, you make your first song. The country is also in a strange place, beginning the transition into democracy, the political and business elites are negotiating the future of the country. Prophets of the City releases its first album, Our World. Yeah. One year later, Boomstyle Correct. Can, can be heard like across nightclubs in the city. Then in 1993, there's a sense of hope building in the country. The negotiations are coming to an end. People start understanding what go what's going on. But still, I think the, the political climate on the ground was still intensifying. Oh, yeah. And then something interesting happens. POC decides to release its most defiant and politically charged album, I think, ever, Age of Truth. Correct. Was the album in response to what was happening in the city and in the country? 100%. Age of Truth, actually all our work was a mirror and reflective of what was just happening I would say practically all over the world, if you think of it, how people yeah. of color and our First Nations people are treated globally. But we didn't know that at the time. We were practically addressing an issue that was affecting us immediately. So with our first album, The Age of Truth, there were so many firsts on that album. The first album to experiment with dialect, the first album in South Africa to fuse Afro-jazz and hip-hop music, Guma music and hip-hop. The first album to, to record, um, you know, the local dialect, if you want to call it that. 
the first album to hear Scratching On. Our world, the first album to boom style, that's when our first banding started. So one of mm. our songs called um, Own Stem, we did our version of the national anthem at the time. Yeah. That song ended up being banned and we had to fight tooth and nail to get that song on the album. That was the final song there. Then one of the music videos are banned at the SABC because we put a picture of the previous president during that time, P.W. Botha, we put his picture into a refrigerator and we told him to chill out, homeboy. Mm. And that music video was, ironically, it was shot inside the SABC building in one of the big studios. Okay. So that was the first experience of being muzzled in this country. Mm. Then we move on to um, the age of truth. And that was a very, very interesting time because there was so much turmoil. There was so much assassinations taking place. And leading up to the age of truth, Prophets of the city had this huge profile in the country. We were the most visible, the most heard band in the country because of this being a hip-hop outfit. Mm. The same as it was for the 80s, it practically happened within the sphere of music, arts and entertainment in our country. There was nothing that looked like it and sounded like it as yeah. well. So there was a lot of interest as well. So with the Age of Truth, we were busy embarking on a national tour, and this was our voter education tour. Okay. So we recorded music mm. and we choreographed a show to teach communities about voting mm. and also teaching them how they should vote and why they should vote as well. So as the tour is happening, there's all the CCB assassinations taking place. You know, anybody that is politically um, affiliated to any resistance movement or whatever the case may be, you are going to be assassinated. On the store, we come back to Cape Town, we purchase guns. Everything from 357s to 38 specials with our low points, the whole thing, and be like, we're not taking chances because we're practically living in a microbus store in the country. That's our home. And we don't know when somebody's going to pull us over and they're going to, you know, start pointing these guns in our faces to take us out because of the political message. And now we're already on the government radar because we've been banned now. And it was not in the government's favor to have a group of young men branded as colored telling the world that we're black and we are speaking from the point of humanity. Not a political, we're not rooting for a political party, whatever the case may be, but by us calling ourselves black, it's much deeper than being affiliated to a racial group. That wasn't, that wasn't the, the intention. And we also wanted to provoke people as well and get people talking because that was the biggest culture shock ever. Mm. So for this dominant band coming out of the Western Cape where the National Party had a stronghold over, Imagine now you're dominating the colored communities and now you find this defined group of colored boys saying that we're black. Mm. But the blacks are your number one enemy. So we're on this um, tour and we start recording Age of Truth in Baputitswana. Not the place you want to be during a political uprising because Baputitswana was regarded as a puppet state, right? And I know there was... Um, a huge resistance against artists going and recording there, but we know there was a lot of artists from the US 
flying in under the radar to go and record at Bob Studios because they had the SSL state-of-the-art mixing desk and it was practically the one of the best recording studios in the world. During that time, Chris Hani gets assassinated. We start rewriting lyrics and we start talking about these things. We meet two kids in Joburg. They are these really funky-looking black kids. The one, I think, is, is um, Sutu and the other one is um, Zulu. We bring them into the band. They become our funky dancers. The one's name is Junior, the other one's Ishmael. In Bapututswan in the recording studio, we discover Ishmael can sing and Junior can rap. He can do dance hall. And we're like, what the hell did, <laughs> did we just uncover here now? Why, why didn't you guys tell us that you could do these things? We would have brought you in and, and you know, to play a much bigger role. And that was the birth of the first Vanak music in um, South Africa as well. So we do songs like Zulu Muffin, Understand mm. Where I'm Coming From, and uh, there's so much uh, bush techniques and so many other songs on that album. Anyway, word gets out into the industry. These freaking kids from Cape Town, they've lost their freaking minds. They are so politically opinionated, they're just dangerous for the music industry. And on the other end, we start winning awards and people are talking about POC and all this and this. The album's out, the album's scooping up awards elsewhere in the world, but POC's banned in South Africa. Yeah. We are set to perform at Madiba's inauguration. Word gets out, no guys, cancel. Prophets of the city cannot perform at Madiba's inauguration. No, this is not going to happen. Anyway, once again, our manager, Mr. Lanster, respect to him. He starts fighting tooth and nail, tooth and nail, tooth and nail. These guys are performing. After all the back and forth and all the fighting, they decide Prophets of the City will perform at Nelson Mandela's inauguration, but they cannot bring their turntables and they cannot bring a band or anything. And we were like, okay, right, how are we going to do this? Right, a light bulb moment, but we have Jasmo, the human beatbox. Jasmo, you're going to beatbox for us and we're still going to freaking go out <laughs> yeah. and perform and give a million strong a, a, a show. And that's how we ended up at Madiba's inauguration, performing with Jasmo, beatboxing and us doing a POC show. Then shortly, shortly after that, things became tough for Prophets of the City in South Africa because we were banned, we're not getting work, we're not on the, we're not on the industry radar no more because mm. the whole industry is pissed. The industry was pretty much um, syndicated at the time. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody in the radio knew the big promoters, those that ran the big concerts and whatever the case may be. Late 94, early 95, we were then based in the UK to record our next album, Universal Soldiers. Thanks to a group from the UK called Fundamental that um, saw us perform in, in Yeovil and they were also quite um, politically driven in the music as well so we gelled mm. and they managed to get us our first international record deal in the UK in 95 and we based ourselves there and from there the next chapter began and, and it was a massive, massive, massive really rewarding journey from there on. And when, when, did, when did Funk Flow happen? Funk Flow happened after the Age of Truth. Sorry, that was the fourth album. The fifth album was Universal Soldiers. So Funk Flow happened on a small limited scale on cassette only, I think it, it, okay. it happened before we relocated to the, to the UK. I find Funk Flow interesting 
um, because you came after the incredibly defiant, black conscious, pan-Africanist yes. age of truth. Nelson Mandela is inaugurated, POC performs at the inauguration. Nelson Mandela stands in front of the world and he says, never, never, never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another and suffer the indignity of being the skunk of the world. Let freedom reign. And a few months after that, another masterpiece is released, Funklo. And the lead single, the, the lead single is, is Never Again. Never and never again shall it be that this beautiful love will again experience the oppression of one by another. And what I find interesting is funk flow is very optimistic. Yes. Much, much, much softer than Age of Truth. Yeah. Um, why did that happen? I think there was a, a there was a, a transitional dynamic that took place because during Age of Truth it was all that assassinations, it was the fear, it was the, the anxiety yeah. of being assassinated. And there was such a lot happening politically from all spheres of life and all of that anger practically came together as one creative outburst that was translated and transformed into the Age of Truth. Yeah. With funk flow, we knew the Age of Truth was, was pressing so many nerves. We thought, let's do funk flow and see how much traction we can get. And with Never Again being on that album, Never Again, the UK remix also became a big single in the UK for us on Universal Soldiers. Never! And never again shall it be that this beautiful love will again experience the oppression of one by another. The revolution was So with us being in the UK, I think the activist within us and that rebellious nature started to spark again. Yeah. Because now you're on the other side of the world and you're seeing things differently and you're learning about other people's struggles and now we're interacting with different activists from all different backgrounds. Yeah. From Native Americans, we met the leaders, those that formed the Bloods and the Crips. We were interacting oh, okay. with the Nation of Islam. We were active, um, interacting with um, creatives, all these things. Mm. So you're seeing the world from a different perspective and beyond so many different stages. We in yeah. the Brixton Academy, opening up for James Brown. Then you, then in Belgium, opening up for the Fugees. And the Fugees then invites you to perform for them or with them in Paris, then be there. And then all of a sudden you meet Africa Mombata and he's mm. in studio with you. And um, then you're there with Lee Scratch Perry and Third World. So all these things are taking place. So your headspace starts opening up yeah. to more and more. And we also felt the need to tell this international audience a little bit more about who we are and where we mm. come from. One of the things I find interesting though, despite uh, the threats of assassination, despite the need to lyrically change your content in funk flow, I think that the, the activist, it seemed like the activist in you at least, you couldn't hold it back. Absolutely you do, not. <laughs> you, you, do, you, you, you do say, uh, one of my favorite lyrics um, in, in Never Again actually, you say, knowledge of self is what makes us strong. You made a choice, you took the vote, Madiba spoke and said never again. 
we should help the man to make sure that the future stays secure or revolution. How important do you think that warning was? Well, look at where we are right now, South Africans. Mm. You know, the warning was made and it's time for new revolution, you know, because we are being suppressed and oppressed on so many different levels. Yeah. And this was our greatest fear that our liberators don't become our oppressors. Yeah. But now we're looking at all of the corruption and it's hard to define and see who your enemy is. Back then mm. you could say, yes, that is a white person in a tank with a Casper or that was that white guy on the TV over there who's blatantly calling us out or, you know, using all these really uh, blatant um, racial terms to define who we are as, as people. So just going back, and it's interesting you point that out, you know, I've actually never um, heard anybody point that out. And for me, it's going to take a radical oval to get us to a certain point. And... You speak about the role that we all have to play in, in, in our liberation or in this revolution that you speak about to imagine a future. And POC has done a lot of that for us, um, has, has allowed us to, has inspired us, has given us hope, has allowed us to, to reimagine. But it's been 25 years since the release of POC's last album. Since then, you've, you've still continued to play an important role um, in the culture, especially in Cape Town. Where do you think, considering this context that you speak about, where do you think the local hip-hop scene is? I am very excited about where we are, you know, as the local hip-hop scene, especially down here in Cape Town City. In fact, mm. spending so much time in Cape Town again and being in touch with what's happening locally, I'm more excited than ever. So it kind of makes me realize a lot of the things that you've pointed out now, they might not know it, but POC had something to do with that. And we didn't intend for that whatsoever. Mm. We just wanted to express our views. And then just getting back to where we are with the local sound, the thing that really, really, really gets me excited is the fact that we are comfortable now, you know, speaking in a local dialect. There's a sense of freedom when it comes to that. Yeah, no, that, that, that's beautiful. But what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Cape Town hip-hop in particular? The biggest challenge facing Cape Town hip-hop at the moment is definitely um, the economics, absolutely. There, okay. isn't a, a, there isn't huge investment in it, yeah. although it's definitely got um, all the right ingredients and the formula. But in order for it to, to have that same profile and status as music coming out of the US or the UK, I think it's, it's lacking that, the business edge. And I feel we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And also remember there was a, a, there was a media bias against Cape Town in a big way, especially mm. against what would be deemed or classified or branded as colored people. Yeah. You know, that reality exists. Mm. And up until today, there's still a media bias as well. Yeah. Because when you look at South Africa from an international view, you think of Hector Peterson. Mm. You now think Jerusalem. You now think black coffee. Mm. But, um, there's other personalities have, that have made the same moves and even bigger and bolder and more dynamic moves. They don't get that type of media interest and attention. Definitely. So people only have a one-minded view of mm. what our country is. You know, through all the movements taking place, I think that we are busy building, we're planting those seeds, and in due time, I think, you know, justice will be done. Thank you for that. My last question, I think it's the most difficult one. 
top five Cape Town based rappers right now? Wow. No, 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 no. You're throwing me into the deep end right now. You're throwing me into the deep end right now. Wow. Wow. It's difficult. Let me just put things in perspective very quickly. I started my radio show in Cape Town City on a radio station called Good Up FM. Hence, me not traveling as much as I used to do. And that's because I wanted to focus on radio. Through my radio station, starting off late 2009, early 2010, we then had a feature called the Ready Decipher, where hip-hop artists will come in and just freestyle and rhyme in the studio. We did a rough tally over an eight-year period, nine-year period, we had close to 2,500 artists in wow. that studio coming through every single Thursday. And we did special events as well. So we were just trying to keep track. And these are artists from all over Cape Town. And when I say Cape Town, I'm, I'm, I'm going through to the outskirts as well. I'm going Worcester, I'm going Hopefield, mm -hmm. I'm going Sears. I'm kind of, you know, on, on, on those borders. So it's very, very difficult. So some of the the names that, that, that stand out at the moment, I'm going to have to exceed that five number, man. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to have to give a shout out to um, um, Kanye Mavi, Three Months Cup, Jerome Rex, um, Clan Fortein, Cream, Youngster CPT, Queen Pin, EJ Von Lyric, Godessa, of course, you know, the all-female hip-hop crew, Godessa. Sure, there's Lynn Chris, the genius. Um, she was, um, there's Hef the Chef, a phenomenal producer making waves and moves for so many hip hop artists right now. I, the list, the list goes on. I think I'm going to do myself an injustice if I try to carry on. But that's just some of the names that's popping up apart from so many other hundreds. There's Ilro, she was, um, there's KB the rapper, there's OG, there's Spyro. This is a super, super, super talented young guy. Uh, there's this new, uh, kid was making waves in the drill scene. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're there now. Matt Lavai is in the drill scene. Mm. And then attached to all these kids is hundreds of other kids that come with him as well. So with that said, we have a really vibrant and we have a really energetic local hip-hop scene at the moment. So there's just too much to say about what's going on in Cape Town at the moment. DJ Reddy, it's been incredibly inspiring. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope um, people enjoy the podcast. And um, if anybody do decide to come to Cape Town City, reach out. Yeah. And apart from talking about music and politics, we have really great food out here as well. So you've got to come and <laughs> experience the good food. I, I agree. This has been Voices of the City, and I'm your host, Minhaj Jina. This episode was produced by Amina Asma and Volume. Join us next week for another episode where another voice of the city will continue to take us on the journey of exploring race, history and resistance through hip-hop in Cape Town.